Hollywood Red Podcast, a podcast that's all about Colorado true crime. I'm your host, Laura, and I have a long one for you guys today. I'd like to remind anyone first, um, anyone new who's listening, that I do have an Instagram and I prefer to use it mostly just to share pictures associated with each case and occasional Colorado crime news and the like, but that's all that's really on there. So let's get this rolling and let's jump right into it. I want to do something a little different, and I want to start this case off today by asking you, the audience, to just imagine a scenario with me. Imagine that a body of someone you don't know is found within several hundred yards of your home. That body is that of someone who was murdered and mutilated, and you, of course, didn't do it. You didn't see anyone dump the body there either, nor did you hear anything at all. Consider your home and the possessions that you currently have in it. Do you think that there could be anything in your home as it is right now that's incriminating or suspicious? Maybe you own guns, maybe you own knives, but let's not stop there. Maybe you own true crime books or books about horrible things in history like genocide or nuclear war. Maybe you have horror movies or some macabre artwork around your house. I know I do. Are you an artist that draws macabre artwork? Or maybe you're a writer and you like to write horror stories and keep a journal of some of your deepest thoughts, things that upset you and make you mad. Maybe the cops find porn in your house or sex toys, as many people have. Now imagine that police officers ransack your home and collect these items that you're thinking of right now and use them to create a case against you for the murder of that person they found near your home. They don't have anything else. It's just that stuff that they found in your home. Does this sound utterly ridiculous and implausible to you? Well, you might be surprised to hear that it happened right here in Fort Collins, Colorado in 1987. It happened to a 15-year-old boy in what is one of the most outrageous and infuriating cases I have read about to this date, and that's including cases from other states. There's only one other case in Colorado that I think comes close to this level of lunacy, and that's a case that I've been doing some investigating on for the better part of a year now, and we'll be revealing a series about at some point. But today, I have the murder of Peggy Hetrick and the false imprisonment of Timothy Masters. Much of the information for this episode comes right from a book I read this month called Drawn to Injustice, The Wrongful Conviction of Timothy Masters, and this book was written by Tim Masters himself with the help of Steve Leto. I've also used various news sources from around the state, the Denver Post, the Coloradoan, um, the Rocky Mountain News, etc. from around that time before it was uh, defunct, and looking through various blogs and stuff. You won't have to look hard to find any TV programs about this case. There is a 48-hour special called Drawn to Murder that does a good job pointing out the total bungling of this case, but doesn't really get into the actual meat of it, which I am about to do. So here we go. On February 11th, 1987, in Fort Collins, Colorado, 15-year-old Tim Masters was getting ready for school, as he did most mornings. He lived in a trailer with his dad, Clyde Masters, on the corner of Landings Drive and Boardwalk. Tim took the bus to school, which would stop just on the other side of a field that was right behind the trailer that he lived in. So he left around 6.55 a.m. to make it in time for the bus, 
and the sun at this point wouldn't be up for another five minutes or so. He made his way across the field and noticed what he thought was a pile of trash, as people had been using this field as a dump site for some time. Used furniture, appliances, McDonald's wrappers, pieces of clothing, anything. He then noticed this dark brown streak of something in the grass, and drag marks going from a curb opposite the field where this object was laying. Out of curiosity, he walked towards it. Tim describes what he thought was a mannequin at first. It looked like a blonde woman with her pants pulled down. She was incredibly pale, but it was difficult to make out any details. He described the mouth as open in this sort of pained exp expression, and he actually convinced himself that it was this Resusian doll, like one of the ones used in CPR lessons, or that some kids at school must have been pulling some kind of prank on him because he was the subject of a lot of taunting and bullying at school. He walked back over to where the bus would pick him up and mentally weighed whether or not what he saw was real. He made the decision that if it was still there when he returned, he would get a closer look and make sure and call the police. Keep in mind that he's a 15-year-old kid. This, you know, might not have been the decision of a clear-thinking adult. Um, so Tim started his day at school completely unaware that what he had seen that morning would change the course of his life forever. The body in the field was that of Peggy Hetrick. She had been fatally stabbed in the back, and what's more, the killer had also carefully sliced off one of her nipples and a piece of her clitoris, using what professionals would later describe as a surgical tool with surgical precision. The body was left face up with her shirt up, exposing her mutilated breast. Her pants were pulled down to her knees, exposing the mutilated clitoris. Tim, who walked by the body that morning, wouldn't even find out until years later that she was actually a redhead and not a blonde, as he thought he saw that morning. It would turn out that very shortly after Tim caught the bus to school, a man riding his bike noticed the body and walked right up to it. This man would testify that at first he also thought it was a mannequin because her skin was this really, really ghostly white color. And the sun was just starting to come up, so something about the lighting at that time made the skin look almost fake. He also saw the brown trail of blood from the curb, and he went to a nearby friend's house to call the police. Officer Michael Swihart was the first at the scene, and he also remarked how pale the body was in his report. She had been dead for hours at this point. Twenty officers would eventually swarm the field, including Sherry Wagner, who interviewed people in the adjacent neighborhood, none of whom saw or heard anything from the previous night. Also on the scene was Detective James Broderick, who also goes by Jim. And if you look up articles, it'll be under Jim, probably. But I'll stick to James because that was what was used in the book. And James Broderick immediately noted that the wounds and the placement of her body, that he was going to work on this theory that this was a sexually motivated homicide and her body had been posed. He would later contact FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, known as VICAP, for some insight. The details about the crime scene were logged by police, but it wouldn't be really discovered until a couple decades later that much of what was noted was forgotten about and ignored. There were footprints in the dirt along the drag trail that her body was on, as well as one clear, smaller footprint walking perpendicularly across the drag trail. 
And I'll have a diagram up on Instagram for you guys about what the sort of map of this entire area looks like. Medical examiner Dr. Pat Allen agreed that the body was displayed when he arrived, and he noticed that portions of the body had been cleaned with a sponge or cloth. This is one of those details that's going to be forgotten. Her blue jeans and panties were pulled to just above her knees, and photos were taken of the scene that progressively get lighter, and you can see all this online, as the sun starts to come up that morning. And police noted this long cut on her right cheek with some odd marks that paralleled the cut. Her purse was still at the scene as well with her identification still inside. And there's no note that I can find about any money left in the purse. Detective Jack Taylor attended the autopsy with District Attorney Terrence Gilmore, who goes as Terry Gilmore. The medical examiner determined that Peggy had a punctured lung and this knife wound into her back had also severed an artery and fractured a rib. He noted the nipple and clitoris mutilations and noted that her death was likely not instantaneous, meaning that she might have been alive from 5 to 30 minutes after she was initially stabbed in the back. Meanwhile, as Tim was sitting at school, he was asked to leave class and head to the school's head office. Officers had spoken with Tim's dad, who said that he watched Tim walk from the house towards the bus stop and walk closer to something in the field to look at it, then continue onto the bus. From the vantage point of the trailer, the body could not be seen itself, a detail that would be misconstrued and twisted for years to come. Tim was greeted in his school's office by an officer named Francis Gonzalez, who wanted to hear what Tim had seen. Tim told him that he thought it was a mannequin, and Gonzalez asked him to remember any details about his evening before and at the crime scene. Gonzalez asked Tim to come down to the police station to write a witness statement, and Tim agreed. He wasn't in the company of his dad at this point, and he went down to the station to give this official statement. But first, a little bit about Tim. Tim was a 15-year-old and was a bit of a loner. His mom, Margaret, had died very unexpectedly a few years earlier when he was just 11 years old. She had a few days of illness that wasn't really improving and wasn't getting worse. And then soon after she was admitted to the emergency room, she died of myocarditis, which is an infection of the heart muscle. So her death was incredibly sudden on the family. Tim describes his mom as the person who held his entire house together. When his mom was alive, he had friends over and they had fun as a family and life was organized. And when she died, the entire family kind of fell apart. His dad was a Navy career man. And after his mom died, he resorted to using heavy limitations and strictness with Tim. And thus, their relationship became really strained and distant. As a result, Tim lost a lot of his childhood friends and his social life at school because he was no longer allowed to go to any friend's houses or to have them over at his house. He gradually became a bit of an outcast, even though he did talk to kids at school now and then. He just didn't have a huge circle of friends, nor was he popular. He had an older sister named Serena, who left soon after um, their mom died and joined the army, leaving just Tim and his dad in the house. For a long time, Tim had had a particular interest in horror movies and books, and he was really into military manuals and other military paraphernalia. And he would draw visions of military scenes and horror scenes constantly, as well as write about them. So on the day that the body of Peggy Hetrick was found in the field behind his house, 
Police continued to cycle through and examine the scene, and they were all within the watch of Tim's dad, who was home. He watched police tracing the steps of the killer from the curb to the place where her body was, and then back to the curb. And on the return trip from the body, they were making really long steps, as if the person who dumped her body had been running. Officer Michael Swihart came by Tim's trailer that night and asked the kind of shoes he wore and what he was wearing when he walked across the field, and the officer took a photo of those shoes. That night, less than 24 hours after the murder, police took down the crime scene tape and curious onlookers who heard what happened through the grapevine and via a newspaper article that had already been published began swarming the field. Tim's dad went to the local 7-Eleven and picked up a copy of the Coloradoan, which released numerous details about the murder, including that Peggy had been stabbed in the back. And now there were kids riding bikes all over where the crime scene was. On the day after the murder, Tim noticed an unmarked car with a man sitting in it watching the field. The man stopped Tim and asked him what he was doing in the field because he was on his way to school again. Detective Russell was the man in the car and he was assigned to watch the field for suspicious activity, something that I guess he didn't get the memo about um, until that morning. The kids at school were all talking about this murder and a boy at school named Wayne Lawson asked him about the murder and Tim told him that he was the first person to see the body and that he thought it was a resuscitation doll. By this time, Tim and anyone else who saw the scene could deduce that the blood trail and line leading from the curb to the body was the drag mark of someone dragging Peggy into the field. The police would continually refer to this mark as the drag mark, and it was no secret to anybody that Peggy had been dragged. Tim, with the image of what he had seen still in his mind, drew a little map for his classmate showing him where the body was behind his house and where the drag marks were from the curb. He also doodled an image of a man dragging the body of another man by the underarms because, as Tim states, he often drew things that were on his mind. On the same page was a doodle of a dinosaur and a person whose tongue was being nailed to a table. While at school... Tim was yet again called out of class, and here he met with Detective Harold Haldeen, who drove Tim to the police station. There, he and his dad signed some forms, and Tim was led away alone for questioning. And questioning is a really light term for what happened that day. Police held Tim for a marathon 13-hour interview process. He was berated by seven different detectives, all attempting to use different tactics to accuse Tim of the murder of Peggy Hedrick, and the entire day's worth of circular accusations was recorded and transcribed. During the beginning of the 13-hour interview day, James Broderick and a team of police officers were ransacking the trailer Tim shared with his dad and ransacking his room. Some things became really evident from the questioning. The detectives didn't much care what Tim's answers were to their questions. They'd still just ask follow-up questions. The interview is just this absolutely maddening thing to look at, but some of the things detectives bring up that stand out are they insinuated that Peggy liked younger men and that Tim, a 15-year-old, was just such a younger man that she would have been seeing. They asked Tim about his dogs and why they didn't bark at someone in the field, 
And they asked him if maybe his dogs would quiet down if someone told them to. And Tim said that people they knew could quiet them down, like Tim and his dad. And they took that to be an admission of his guilt that he had actually quieted the dogs down that night. They continually returned to the theme that it was Peggy's fault she was killed that night in some kind of attempt to get Tim to own up to the handiwork that they were accusing him of. They flat out told Tim that he did it and that they knew he did it. They asked him if he ever thought about murder before, and thinking back to all of his fiction writings containing murder, he said yes, he had thought about it because he had written about it. At some point in the day, he was given a polygraph by a man who would later be discredited as a polygraph administrator, who again chose to ask him questions like, had he ever thought about murder, when his writings clearly showed that he had. They would tell him he failed the polygraph, but the result of that test would become mysteriously lost later. It would also be revealed that Peggy's ex-boyfriend, Matt Zollner, had an inconclusive polygraph. They told him he was stupid and a baby, and they told him if he admitted he did it, then he wouldn't be getting into that much trouble. They asked him to describe a scenario in which he killed Peggy, as if to trap him in some kind of false admission. But each time he'd describe this fictional murder, he would add something that didn't happen to Peggy, like he would shoot her, but the detective would come in and request that he change the murder weapon from a gun to a knife. Pointless and tiresome exercises like this one went on for hours and filled up the entire day. They told him that he left all kinds of evidence at the crime scene, but they wouldn't say what it was. They asked him to talk about his masturbation habits. They threw down a plaster cast of the shoe prints going along the drag marks so hard onto the table that this plaster cast broke in half. They screamed at him that it was his shoe print, and he became so fed up that he took off his own shoe and put it up to the cast to show that the cast was several sizes larger than his own shoe. And then James Broderick, who had been going through his room, came in. Tim wouldn't know until nearly two decades later that James Broderick had spent five hours in his room that day pouring through all of his sketchbooks and writings. And Tim admits himself he's no prodigal artist. These books and drawings and doodles and stuff were fairly childish things, along with the campy horror scenes that Tim liked to draw. It would eventually become incredibly clear that something just sort of snapped inside the mind of James Broderick as he went through Tim's room. He made up his mind in there that day that this would be the case that made his career and that Tim Masters would be going down. When Broderick entered the interview room on this marathon day of questioning, he had it in his mind that not only was Tim a sexual pervert, but a violent masochist. He also stuck on a collection of army knives that Tim had sitting out, claiming such a collection by a teenage boy in the 80s was unprecedented. He could see almost anything he wanted to within the writings and drawings of Tim Masters. One such story was one called Reds vs. Recons, and it was the story of children who went to war with other children when their parents were away, and it was inspired by a book Tim read in school, The Lord of the Flies. Broderick told Tim that the story was basically an admission of his own guilt. Broderick's focus from here on out would be the drawings and the writings of Tim, and it would play out in ways Tim could never have possibly imagined. 
And I'd like to take this brief moment to remind you all that unless you are under arrest, you do not have to stay and talk to the police. You can leave at any time you want. They did eventually bring Tim's dad back into the room and let them stay in the room alone together while they secretly recorded them. And Tim's dad asked Tim if he had done this. And Tim said for probably the millionth time that day that he had not. And his dad believed him because he ran a tight ship and he knew that Tim hadn't left. They eventually returned to their ransacked house and they realized they had taken a lot from Tim's room, all of his art and writing, the military knife collection, and all of his shoes. A couple of unprecedented events happened over the next couple of days. The police had a bunch of volunteers, including teenagers from Tim's school, who were part of the local Explorer Scouts, link arms and travel across the field looking for any new clues. Remember, this is the field that they had the public rummaging through it and running through just a few days prior. They also apparently told a lot of details about the crime to these teenagers and told them to stay away from Tim Masters, which of course didn't do anything at all to help his already precarious school situation. They interviewed a lot of his classmates about his apparent perversions, which were all made up in the mind of James Broderick. One girl who was an explorer scout who walked the field told Tim in an art class that they had together that Peggy's nipple had been bitten off because a police officer had told this to a teenage girl. And he even got the facts wrong because her nipple wasn't bitten off. It was cut off with a scalpel. Police also started following Tim wherever he went and they weren't even trying to hide it. Broderick began running theories by FBI agents to bolster his initial theory that Tim was this sexually perverted and violent individual. He told the FBI agent in a memo that the murder of Peggy Hetrick was on the anniversary of Tim's mom's death, and over the course of 20 years, James Broderick would never fully grasp that the date was close, but it was actually off by a few days. And so the murder of Peggy did not occur on the anniversary of Tim's mom's death. So all this investigation into Tim was going on. What about Peggy? Who was she and what was she doing that night? Peggy was 37 years old and this very beautiful redhead with blue eyes. She stood about five foot two and weighed 120 pounds. She lived in an apartment about a mile from the field where her body was dumped in. And she worked at a local clothing store called The Fashion Bar. She didn't own a car, but would walk to and from work and to meet with friends at local restaurants and bars. She was traveled. And the books I referenced said that this was because her dad was in the Air Force. But another article I read says it's because he was in the oil business. But either way, she, went, she lived in a lot of different countries. And she actually graduated from a high school in South Africa. In her belongings, they found a diary and an unfinished novel that she was working on because she wanted to become a writer. She had this on-and-off relationship with a local used car salesman named Matt Zollner, and before she was killed, their relationship had entered a brand new rough patch. On the evening that Peggy was killed, she got off work around 9 p.m. and went to her apartment she shared with her roommate to find that it was locked and that she didn't have any of her keys. She walked over to a local haunt called the Prime Minister to call her roommate to try to wake her up inside of the home because she thought she was sleeping inside. And there she saw Matt Zollner, this man that she was having this on-again, off-again relationship with, 
and also saw another woman walk up to him and kiss him, which didn't really make her that happy. Matt offered Peggy a ride, which she declined. She made a final phone call, no one knows to who, and left around closing time at 1.30 a.m. Matt's alibi is that he was with this other woman that night, but in his interview, he would keep referring to her as Sean. When they interviewed her, her name was actually Dawn, and she verified his alibi, but only up until about 3 a.m. Matt and Peggy smoked the same brand cigarettes, Merritt's, and Merritt's were found at the curb near the large blood stain marking the start of the drag trail, as well as around in Peggy's various items and Matt Zollner's items as well. None were really tested for saliva to see if they matched Matt or Peggy. Matt also had access to a number of cars he could drive because he worked for a local used car lot. But they took him, the police ended up taking Matt at his word for which car he was driving that night. They also searched Matt's apartment and found some very large knives with homemade handles and a razor blade and Merritt brand cigarettes in his home. And apparently Matt's collection of knives didn't tickle their fancy quite as much as Tim's collection did because they never looked any further into Matt Zollner. This case had a mounting list of potential suspects other than Tim Masters. Two men driving a stolen car with Texas license plates had been spotted by a waitress at a Perkins restaurant. They had rap sheets in Texas, California, and Louisiana, and so they were driving around in the streets that night, and they actually were questioned before they fled and were arrested in Texas, but police decided to not really follow up on that lead. The Prime Minister Bar, the bar that Peggy was seen at, a woman working the door named Terry Safris was threatened by a man with an icicle who made erratic stabbing motions at her with it, and she said that he was in his mid-30s with brown hair and a square jawline, and police didn't follow up because they had a murder to solve. Another woman had a man expose himself to her closer to where Peggy's body was dumped, and there were other murders around this time that had remarkable similarities. Linda Holt, a woman in her 30s, was abducted and stabbed to death in Fort Collins in March of 1987. Mona Hughes, also in her 30s, was stabbed in the back in Greeley. A local man named Donnie Long had been in the sights of Fort Collins police for a while, and when they finally went to arrest him for the murder of both Hughes and Holt, they told him that he was under arrest for murder, and he asked back, which one? They never questioned him about Peggy because, after all, they thought they had their murderer in the form of Tim Masters. The police were working diligently to find reason to arrest Tim, even if the evidence they collected didn't really fit that theory. A couple of hairs were found on Peggy's sock and boots that didn't belong to Peggy. They ended up not belonging to Tim or Matt Zollner and were promptly forgotten about. Police sent the video recording of Tim's day-long interview at the station to an FBI behavioral science unit under the premise that they already knew Tim had committed the murder. And based on this and nothing else, they received a report back that it was likely that Tim had stashed the nipple and a piece of the clitoris in a special hiding place somewhere, and that he had probably snuck up on Peggy in this low, combative position, and that he was definitely dangerous. They started coming up with creative ways to get Tim to crack and admit to killing Peggy. The FBI agent who reviewed the videos sent a correspondence with a suggestion to have Tim shadow a SWAT team member for the day, 
like a sniper and maybe Tim would confide in that sniper. And that idea was luckily never executed by the police station. But this isn't to say that everyone at the Fort Collins Police Department believed Tim Masters was their guy. Police officer Troy Krenning had a younger brother who played Dungeons and Dragons, and he had a lot of really similar drawings. And he wasn't really buying the idea that the drawings alone were indicative of violence that was acted upon. Six months passed, and a boy named Gregory Shade was playing in a ditch a couple of blocks from the field and found a knife. He played with it for a bit, stabbed it into the ground, etc., and then brought it home and showed it to his dad, who called the police. Several members of the police force became convinced that this was the murder weapon that had killed Peggy. And this was despite the fact that there was no evidence on this knife linking it to Peggy or to Tim, and no conclusive evidence that even that type of knife had made the stab wound. And with that, the case went cold. Police didn't have enough to charge Tim with the murder, despite them claiming that they had tons of evidence to prove that he did it. As I'm sure you can all guess from the length of this episode, that this is nowhere close to the end of it all. In another last-ditch, unethical, and unprecedented stunt, Detective Ray Martinez invited Tim, who was still a minor, to a Perkins restaurant to tell him that... He thinks the knife Gregory Shade found was the murder weapon and that it looked like the knives Tim owned and that him, Martinez, had no doubt in his mind that Tim had committed the murder. And so Tim attempted to get on with his life but would discover that it wasn't as easy as he would have hoped. For several years after the murder, police would stake out the field and Peggy's grave site on the anniversary of the murder in the hopes that Tim would come back to it and perform some kind of ritual. They even staked out the field from a neighboring house that will become very important later on in the episode. And no one, including Tim, ever showed back up to these sites. Police continued even years later to occasionally stake out Tim's house. What they thought they would see is really anyone's guess, but they never saw it. And Tim's life suffered for all of this. He became a greater outcast at school, he didn't attend proms or dances, and he had thoughts of killing himself. The only thing driving his life at this time was his desire to join the military with the Navy, the branch that his dad and uncle were in. And by the time Tim was of age, he started the recruitment process. It was his light at the end of the tunnel and escape from the binoculars of local police. His book goes into much more detail on the matter, but Tim got part of the way through the recruitment process up to the point of being close to going to basic training when the Navy decided to discharge him because he was a suspect in a murder investigation. This was the beginning of the soul-crushing reality that the determination of a handful of Fort Collins detectives to make him guilty of this murder would haunt his life. Luckily, though, after his dad got involved and they found a lawyer, they discovered that there's actually no disqualification for the Navy for being a suspect in a crime. So Tim eventually did get into the Navy. The book goes into more detail about Tim's time in the Navy as well, but I'm going to skim it way down for this episode. He tested high, and he wound up going into an aviation engineering field. But because of his years of scrutiny in Fort Collins, he always felt like they were just right around the corner waiting to come grab him waiting to pounce on him. He drank quite heavily, a habit he actually picked up after becoming a suspect as a teenager. 
it became this coping mechanism for all of the stresses caused by being a primary suspect in a murder that he didn't commit. He had orders onto ships, and during his stint in the Navy, he had several DUIs associated with drinking, but was overall an average enlisted. And then in 1991, that boogeyman behind the corner surfaced. A year after Peggy was murdered, a detective named Linda Wheeler Holloway took over the case and tried to give another look at all this evidence. However, as she went to the files, she was told to look at Tim Masters as the only suspect and create a case against him. She couldn't find any kind of confession in the interview tapes, and in fact, all she found was Tim Masters sticking to his story that he didn't know what happened. All he did was see the body on the way to the bus stop. She found some evidence about blood on Tim's pants, but the blood belonged to Tim, and he had an explanation for it. He had cut himself with one of his own knives. She noted from many of the times that police had talked to Tim that he mentioned that there was an injury to one of Peggy's breasts, which until that point she thought was something that only the police knew could have happened to the body. And she used this information to create an arrest warrant for Tim, despite the fact that police had been telling many people off the record about the injury to Peggy's breast. So Tim was called into a Navy office base in 1991, now four years after the murder, by Linda Wheeler-Holloway, James Broderick, and Hal Dean. They began the same line of questioning that they had left off with. Tim remained steadfast with his own story about coming across the body and that he had nothing to do with the murder, the details of which were now being completely ignored in favor of arresting him. They asked Tim about his drawings and writings, which by this point were a long-gone joke for him. Can anyone truly imagine being judged by their teenage drawings and writings as an adult? They brought up a storage shed that was on someone else's property within the area of the field. And they told Tim that they had found some lewd drawings in it and that they knew that he had drawn them. And Tim had no idea what they were referring to. No pictures of this storage shed were ever taken. They also said that they found graffiti of a sexual nature in some underpasses near the area and blamed that on Tim as well. They asked him how he could have ever known that her breast was mutilated, and he informed them that he heard it from one of the teenage explorer scouts who scanned the field after the murder. Remember that police had told all these volunteers about the details of the case and warned them to stay away from Tim. Detective James Broderick chimed in, and at this point, he seemed completely unhinged and determined to arrest him. He jumped back and forth between circular questioning and weird, incoherent speeches about Tim's guilt. Here's an actual excerpt that I'm going to read from this interview in Philadelphia in 1991 where James Broderick is trying to get a confession out of Tim. I want you all to listen to this and imagine what your response might be in this scenario. You could make all kinds of a, there could be a logical explanation, you know. They could find a gun that was in my backyard that was used in a shooting and conclude that it's my gun. But somebody could have thrown it over the fence, too, okay? So, I mean, there's explanations for everything, is what I'm saying. Uh, We already talked about the pornography. I guess we'll put a question mark on this concept, Hut. But I think if I didn't already tell you that the inference is that you were in it, based on what your dad said, 
and we got to check all that out and that there was some gunshots to the breasts and the pubic area. So again, that's showing some violence and some escalated violence as well as to the drawing. But actually some things that, that your window was in a direct line of sight and that you have access outside that window and to a larger degree and believability and tell me if I'm wrong, that you went out that window and maybe twice when you were in sixth grade and never since then. Is that right? Literally word for word, that's what James Broderick said to Tim that day in 1991. Does that make any sense to anybody? Probably not. Linda Wheeler Holloway, luckily, wasn't hell-bent on arresting Tim. The idea that he had intimate knowledge no one else should have known was the basis of their arrest warrant, and it was blown out of the water by the realization that police blabbed details to explorer scouts. Linda checked up on this on the evening after their interview in 1991 and found the explorer scout who confirmed she was told about the breast mutilation. And in one of the only intelligent moves made by detectives during the investigation of this case, Linda Wheeler Holloway decided not to arrest Tim in 1991. Before Linda left the case, she tried contacting the FBI Behavioral Sciences Unit, but was told to instruct them to look at Tim Masters and work backward, and they refused. But they agreed to look at the case file. The head of Fort Collins Crimes Against Persons Unit at that time was Don Vag, and he told Linda not to send the file. So it was put back on the shelf. Tim continued with his life in the Navy, but it wasn't without the burdens of this case. News had spread about his position as a murder suspect and his interview in Philadelphia, and he was never really treated the same way by any of his co-workers or superiors ever again. Tim struggled with alcohol um, to fight with these demons, and as he tried his best to continue on with his life, a new and incredibly strong suspect surfaced in Fort Collins. On March 19, 1995, now just under eight years after Peggy was murdered, Gina Burkhart was house-sitting for a local eye doctor and his family. The family was the Hammond family. Dr. Richard Hammond was a local eye surgeon, and he lived in the house with his wife, Becky Hammond, and their daughter. They would often go on trips and have local girls and women house-sit for them with their friends. On this particular evening, Gina went to use the bathroom in their split-level Fort Collins home and heard this really strange noise. As she sat on the toilet, she heard the unmistakable sound of a camera focusing. She had noticed that the bathroom was really, really unusually bright. And not only that, but there was this large, huge air vent positioned on the wall opposite the toilet. Whenever she would move and get closer to the air vent, she heard the sound of the camera focusing. She went down and peered through the vent and could clearly see the camera behind the vent. She called an ex-boyfriend who used to be a cop, and he came over and also saw the camera. They removed the grate and found an entire secret room behind this vent. The room contained an elaborate recording system to record people on the toilet, and not only that, it had hundreds of VHS tapes cataloging women who had sat on the toilet in the house. They called the police. The police would discover meticulously cataloged tapes. The tapes had a catalog list, which featured names and ages of women, many of whom were underage. 
They also featured a rating, like a rating for whether or not they were good material. James Broderick was the supervisor who headed up this investigation. They uncovered hundreds of videos from this back room, all meticulously logged by Dr. Hammond. There was another curious aspect of this house. It backed to the field where Peggy Hedrick's body was found. In fact, the place where Peggy's body was was clearly visible from the Hammond's bedroom. Police had even used Dr. Hammond's bedroom for the stakeout for the years where they anticipated Tim Masters returning to do whatever they thought he would be doing at the site of her body. And of course, he never returned. For years, investigators would use the proximity of Tim's trailer to the site of Peggy's body to bolster their case against Tim. But here was Dr. Hammond, whose house was almost the exact same distance from the site and with a better view. Dr. Hammond turned out to be one of the most perverse and bizarre criminals in Colorado history. For years, he had been having affairs that his wife knew about, and it would be discovered that Dr. Hammond videotaped his own daughter in the bathroom too, and she knew it, because in her tapes that were kept, she would often turn off the light to use the toilet. He also videotaped his own niece. He videotaped himself having sex with prostitutes in Denver, the Hammonds were in financial trouble, and Dr. Hammond had maxed out several credit cards, buying some estimated $40,000 worth of equipment used to tape and catalog women using the restroom in his home. He also had an off-site storage unit with hundreds of more tapes and sexual items, in addition to a post office box containing receipts of surgical equipment sent personally to him. It included scalpels and gloves, and you might ask yourself, why would a man who, who owns his own surgical practice have simple equipment shipped secretly to him and not just to his own practice? It's a really good question. There was a significant difference between how James Broderick and his team handled Dr. Hammond as opposed to Tim Masters. Here was this man with mountains of catalog evidence of his sexual perversions. He had evidence of hiding the purchase of scalpels and other surgical materials. He was obsessed with sex and perversions related to it and lived the same distance from the field Peggy was found in as Tim. His house was actually on the walking path Peggy would have more than likely taken to get from the prime minister to her apartment because it was shorter and better lit. Dr. Hammond had videotaped countless women and young girls in Fort Collins using the bathroom in his home under the ruse that they were house-sitting. The site where Peggy's body was lying was visible from the Hammond's bedroom. But James Broderick decided that Dr. Hammond was not related to the Peggy Hedrick murder case in any way at all. They just, they were like, nah, I couldn't, they couldn't draw a line between the two. Despite the hundreds of videotapes featuring minors, Dr. Hammond would only be charged with one count of sexual exploitation of a child. He also had friends in the police department, and they let him call the shots for this. He decided that he would check himself into the local Mountain Crest Psychiatric Hospital to have his problem looked at. The district attorney, Terry Gilmore, excused himself from the case because he and his wife were friends with the Hammonds. Detectives interviewed Becky Hammond, Dr. Hammond's wife, who was curiously given immunity from any wrongdoing in exchange for her testimony, as if they thought that she did have some involvement in these crimes. 
What's also interesting in the transcriptions of her interview, um, they feature a lot of deletions to the point where they're useless. For example, things she said would be replaced with the term several sentences or replaced with the term stuff. For example, from one of her statements about her house being searched, it reads as this. The police have been here and found this stuff. Slash, slash, slash. He said, did you anything about it? And I said, no, you know, we are slash, 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 several sentences. I don't remember exactly where it was. She did say that her husband, Dr. Hammond, would make weekly trips out of town to clear his mind, and he would pick up women at bars and the gym, an activity that she was aware of. Dr. Hammond would even travel as far as the Netherlands, Bangladesh, and Hong Kong to do all of this. Becky Hammond pretended to play dumb about the secret room in their house, but also admitted to entering it and helping her husband carry out plastic bins full of items. She pretended to just not notice the camera set up right there. Detectives never thought to ask Becky about what her husband was up to in 1987 when Peggy was murdered, nor did they explore any of the hundreds of tapes containing videos of women using the bathroom in their home. You have to wonder, could Peggy have really been on any of those tapes? The ones in his house only dated back two years, but the ones in his storage locker could have been from much earlier, and they would just never look at any of these tapes. What Detective Broderick decided to do with these tapes will leave you absolutely dumbfounded. On March 24th, 1995, Dr. Hammond checked himself out of the psychiatric facility that he admitted himself to. At 3 p.m. that afternoon, he checked himself into a La Quinta in Boulder, Colorado, but some other sources say that it was in Denver. He wrote a letter to his friend, District Attorney Terry Gilmore, asking him to please not expose the women and girls in the tapes to further humiliation, as some of them were minors. He made a phone call around 4 a.m., and then injected himself with cyanide. A maid found his body the next morning and noted that he had a Leatherman knife on his hip. It would be discovered that Dr. Hammond had a whole collection of guns and knives, something that was completely ignored by police. Becky told investigators that she considered herself lucky because she thought her husband could have easily taken the family with him. Several detectives did wonder if the Peggy Hetrick case could be related to Dr. Hammond, and they especially wondered who was in the hundreds of tapes in Dr. Hammond's storage locker. James Broderick didn't care, and he actively put forth motions to destroy the evidence in the Hammond case, citing that he thought the victims would prefer it to be this way, to protect their identities. He undermined a, a local assistant a city attorney and informed him that they had been given permissions from the victims to destroy the tapes to protect them, even though most of the tapes hadn't even been looked at. And years later, victims would emerge who wanted to file lawsuits and needed the tapes as evidence. The request, which was purposely uh, con convoluted and lied about, was granted. So, the materials and the evidence in the Dr. Hammond case were burned and buried in a landfill on August 15, 1995, most of which had never even been looked at, with James Broderick heading the destroyal of the evidence. It had only been six months since Dr. Hammond's perversions had been discovered. 
The Peggy Hetrick case weighed on James Broderick, and as of 1994, it was the only unsolved case on the Fort Collins books, and this upset James Broderick. While his co-workers celebrated closed cases at the bar, he still had the only unsolved case in the city hanging over his head, and he vowed to close it by getting Tim Masters behind bars. James Broderick started shopping psychiatrists who would confirm his theory that Tim was a sexually motivated psychopath. And it actually took him several tries until he found one desperate and arrogant enough to support this theory and bolster his own career. And his name was Reed Malloy. Reed Malloy charged $300 per hour for his work, and he would wind up charging the state of Colorado tens of thousands of dollars for his work in the Peggy Hedrick case. So in 1998, the police got permission to exhume Peggy's body after an investigator suggested that a piece of knife could have broken off inside her body. Her body was x-rayed and no piece of knife was found and no new developments came from this exhumation. Also in 1998, using the suspect analysis of Reed Malloy, who had never actually met Tim Masters, and some creative writing in the arrest affidavit, James Broderick got the warrant to arrest Tim Masters, who was living in Ridgecrest, California, and about to accept a job with Learjet after leaving the military. James Broderick had started to blur the lines between the fictional stories Tim wrote and reality, often stating that things Tim's fictional characters did were stuff that Tim had actually done in real life. When James Broderick knocked on Tim's door, he pounded and pounded and eventually opened the door himself and threatened to mace Tim's dog in the face who thought that there was an intruder coming in Tim's door. Tim didn't even recognize Broderick at this point who didn't try to hide the fact that he was elated to be arresting him. This time, Tim wouldn't answer Broderick's questions until he had a lawyer. But that didn't stop police from ransacking his apartment in Ridgecrest and discovering more doodles and some adult magazines and some more writings, which James Broderick considered to be even further proof of Tim's guilt. They also interviewed his sister Serena in California. Tim's father had died from a heart attack in 1995 and his trailer had been moved to Loma, Colorado and the police broke a window on that trailer and trashed the inside of it looking for anything for the case. Profiling was really hitting its stride around this time and was possibly being taken a little too seriously by detectives around the United States. Instead of using profiling as a guide to narrow down people to look for, they reverse engineered a profile that matched Tim Masters. The arrest of Tim Masters for one of the biggest unsolved murders in Colorado was huge news, and newspapers at this time were talking almost exclusively with the police because Tim's lawyers advised him not to talk with the media, something that would come back to bite him. Newspapers reported that Tim had been arrested using breakthroughs in forensic science, as if hinting that there was some kind of DNA evidence when it didn't actually exist. What's more is James Broderick was now heavily leaning on what he called displaced matricide, which basically meant that he thought Tim killed Peggy in order to symbolically kill his own mother based on his idea that Tim's mother's death and the murder of Peggy occurred on the same day of the year, when they hadn't actually occurred on the same day of the year. 
Tim decided to get an attorney himself and not use a public defender, and he hired Eric Fisher and to assist him, Nathan Chambers, who had worked on high-profile cases like the Timothy McVeigh case. During one motion hearing, Eric asked the prosecution what they were doing because they knew they didn't have a case. Jolene Blair, the assistant district attorney, told Eric Fisher that Tim's drawings just weren't right. And that, in a nutshell, was really their entire case. In pretrial, they were given a couple thousand pages worth of so-called evidence that the prosecution was using. And within these pages, they found handwritten notes from James Broderick. At one point, he writes a note to himself on a page reminding himself to look at acting out some of Tim's drawings in court. Under Colorado law, evidence of a person's character is not usually admissible, but using Reed Malloy and the prosecution, they planned on making the drawings appear like reflections of Tim's fantasies and evidence documenting his actions. On Thursday, March 18, 1999, the first day of the trial began. On this day, the prosecution tried to make the case that Peggy was killed and mutilated in the field she was found in, even though the medical examiner had never confirmed that. And the pool of blood found at the curb would indicate that her body had been removed from a car and that she was killed and mutilated elsewhere. The prosecution detailed their version of events that Tim had snuck out of his room in the night and went down to the road where he saw Peggy and snuck up behind her in a sneak attack and stabbed her in the back. Then he drug Peggy's body into the field where he sliced off her nipple and excised a portion of her vagina with a hunting knife. They also brought up Reed Malloy and told the jury that Malloy would meticulously demonstrate to them that Tim's drawings were documental evidence of his actions. Day two of the trial saw a number of witnesses, including the man on his bike who found Peggy in the field after Tim left and thought that it was a mannequin at first as well. A police officer took the stand to indicate that Tim's footprint was found in the field, even though Tim had said that he walked through the field and the presence of his footprint wasn't odd. There was also no report provided that indicated where any of these footprints actually were. No such document was made. In addition, another officer testified that the footprints going along the drag trail were never actually plastered and kept. Only Tim's footprint was cast and kept in the evidence. Taylor also testified to something even more questionable, that a man had come in and admitted to murdering Peggy, but any further questioning about this was stopped by the judge. The officer also testified that the killer likely had no blood on themselves, despite the fact that there was blood all over Peggy and the curb and the drag trail, and this was largely said to match Tim Masters since no blood was found on Tim or on any of his stuff. Patrick Allen, the coroner, testified that Peggy's nipple was removed with precision and likely done with a scalpel. The contradiction of this with their theory that Tim removed the nipple with the hunting knife was not really noticed by the jury or anybody else. The coroner also indicated that he thought Peggy had lost a lot of blood, but he didn't seem to be able to quantify it. He also didn't seem to be able to pinpoint her time of death within any reasonable window. James Broderick testified that day, and he mentioned a small detail that had thus far been overlooked. 
Inside of Peggy's purse was a note that she had written to Matt Zollner, her ex-boyfriend, that she was locked out of her apartment and needed his help. Broderick testified that this must have meant that she had gone to Matt Zollner's before walking home and meeting her fate. And Broderick never really bothered explaining why the note would still be in her purse if she had actually made it to Matt Zollner's. What was clear was that detectives weren't actually sure what Peggy had done that night after leaving the Prime Minister bar. And it was clear that based on multiple witnesses, Peggy was at the Prime Minister until around 1.30. And there she had gotten in a fight with Matt before making a phone call to someone that was never figured out and leaving. The trial lasted six days, and I won't go into every detail of it, but the main points of the trial are thus. One, Matt Zollner testified that they had an argument at the bar, but it wasn't hostile, and he had offered to give Peggy a ride home, which she declined. The police had also seized the car Matt Zollner was driving that night and found some knives and razor blades in it, which were not considered suspicious. Two, Sexual images inside a shed on another person's property and under a local bridge were assumed to be Tim's unless proven otherwise, and no cop had ever bothered to actually photograph any of these images. Three, the prosecution brought up a 22 caliber rifle that was uh, owned by Tim's dad and claimed that Tim had actually used it himself, which he never had. In fact, the gun had never even been shot before. But no one would know for sure since it had never been tested by the police. The bringing up of the gun was merely to make the jury think that Tim was obsessed with weapons. Four, an officer testified that he found a scalpel in Tim's room, but no such scalpel was logged as evidence or had a picture taken of it, and Tim claimed to never have owned a scalpel. Five, Ray Martinez testified about showing Tim the cast of the shoe that he didn't own in a size that was several sizes too large. And anything that Tim said about this cast was used against him. Tim's denial that the print was his was seen as defensive. And his silence was seen as an admission of guilt. Six, Hal Dean testified that he questioned Tim about Peggy walking by his house and that Tim must have seen Peggy and planned the attack on her. After all, why would Tim have come out and run up to Peggy to stab her in the back? Haldine even told Tim times that Peggy would have been walking by. And when the 15-year-old Tim told him about some of his favorite shows that were on at the time and that he wasn't in the habit of staring out the window for hours, Haldine testified that he found that alibi to be suspicious. 7. James Broderick would take the stand several times and make Reed Malloy's interpretation of the drawings and the drawings themselves and the knives found in Tim's room the focal point. He went as far as to hold up every single knife, including one larger one, and relish in the gasps of horror from the jury at how large the knife was. Remember that none of the knives he was holding up were ever linked to Peggy or matched to her injuries. He also described a couple of toy guns in Tim's room as dangerous. Broderick also honed in on the drawings, and one such drawing was of a knife going through the paper that it was drawn on, and Reed Malloy would take the stand to say that it was clearly an image of a knife cutting into a vagina, which you have to really stretch your imagination to see, and I'll have that image up on Instagram. 
Broderick said that a doodle of a person being sliced in half was also a depiction of genital mutilation. Broderick's absolute obsession with Tim's drawings was made really clear. Remember that Broderick spent five hours the day that 15-year-old Tim was interviewed for 13 hours, and sometime during those five hours, Broderick, for whatever reason, had decided that he needed to take Tim down. Something about Tim just made Broderick become unhinged. And Broderick would also testify that you could see Peggy's body from Tim's window in the trailer, and that he tested his theory by sticking a two-foot-long piece of wood into the ground, which he could see the top of from Tim's window. He never seemed to grasp that Peggy's body laying on the ground wasn't two feet tall. Eight, and here's a weird one. The prosecution dug up this old childhood neighbor of Tim's, one whose name he actually used in a story, and the girl, who was now a woman, had red highlights in her hair. And in some attempt to try to make some connection to Peggy, they asked the jury to note what color her hair was. And they also tried to say that Tim's mom also had red hair. This was a detail that they never decided to verify because Tim's mom was a brunette. Nine, they dug up an old school teacher and counselor of Tim's and asked them questions about moments they remember Tim ever acting out or being angry, even for really simple teenage angst type stuff. 10. A fiber analyst from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation testified that she found denim material under Tim's nails and that Peggy was wearing denim jeans. And it was never really mentioned that Tim was also wearing denim jeans. 11. Reed Malloy, a man who had never even spoken with Tim and never would, took the stand and actually used it to pitch his own book, from which he took a lot of the information about Tim's sexual obsession. Reed Malloy had Broderick go through some 2,200 pages of Tim's drawings and make categories for them, and some categories were called death or knives, and others made less sense, like a category just involving the number 10. Malloy dropped a lot of words on the jury, like uh, picurism, which is sexual gratification in stabbing somebody. Malloy testified that Tim's stories were an admittal of guilt, even though they were sometimes written years before the murder. So one thing was really clear, and it was Malloy and Broderick who had difficulty separating reality from fantasy. One has to wonder, like, just how sexually obsessed you have to be to see a doodle of a person being cut in half and think that it's about genital mutilation. The defense would call just one witness, an actual psychiatric expert who refuted Reed Malloy's ridiculous claims about sexual masochism and other things derived from the drawings. He testified that there was no connection between fantasizing about violence and desire and acting it out, a topic that was really reaching a fever pitch in psychiatry at this time. Closing arguments lasted for an hour and a half each, and the prosecution reiterated the drawings, and in just another weird, unprecedented move to add to this circus, they actually asked the jury to handle the evidence themselves with gloves on and see if they couldn't find evidence of Tim's guilt. They also instructed the jury to doubt Tim's credibility as a witness, even though he had never actually taken the stand at the trial. The prosecution concluded by asking the jury, who else 
other than Tim Masters could have done this. And Tim was in his late 20s now. He wasn't the teenager he was when he supposedly committed this crime. The jury saw Tim as a grown man and had heard nothing of the other suspects, including Dr. Hammond. So the prosecution asked the jury, who else could have possibly killed Peggy? Who indeed? The jury deliberated for one day and returned with the verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. Under Colorado law, there was one sentence for this, life in prison without the possibility of parole. And so with that, Tim spent a decade in jail. His largest comments about it involve the isolation and the lack of dignity in jail. He also commented on the fact that he was always hungry and there were budget issues around this time that had prisons feeding prisoners rotten meat, among other things. Six months into his stint in prison, Tim was visited by Linda Wheeler Holloway, who was now working for the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. She expressed that she believed Tim was innocent and was incredibly shocked by this verdict. She had Tim do another lie detector test, which he failed. And without getting too much into lie detector tests with you guys, plenty of innocent people have failed them and plenty of guilty people have passed. The science of a lie detector test is dubious at best, and it's becoming a much less used tool for investigators. But because of the results, she decided not to pursue the fight against his conviction. An episode of Cold Case Files came out against Tim. They showed his drawings and they interviewed Broderick and made Tim look like this sick and twisted teenager. Tim used his time in jail and studied the legal process and mounted his appeal. He filed a 35C, which is a motion for reconsideration with the state court. There were several important points to bring up in the form just to illustrate the mishandling of his case. The biggest one was that Tim was only 15 years old when he was interviewed without his dad or lawyer present. He was even asked to come meet a detective by himself at a Perkins restaurant. The connection between Peggy's red hair and the claim that Tim's mom also had red hair could easily be disproven quickly in this form. An old copy of Tim's mom's ID, which listed her hair as a brunette, sufficed to prove that wrong and cast doubt on the investigation and what was said at the trial. In August of 2002, Tim found out the court had appointed him a public defender for his case and approved his 35C. His public defender was Maria Liu, and she would become very vocal in the coming years that Tim's case was one of the most insane cases she had ever worked with. It was clear to her from looking at the files that there was absolutely no reason Tim should have been convicted of the murder. Over the next few years, the defense team for Tim would face some absolutely ridiculous pushback from the Fort Collins DA and police department in securing all of the files and evidence for the case. It wasn't until several court orders later that they managed to get all of it back and discovered that while Tim's lawyers had originally only been given around 3,000 pages of documents, the prosecution had around 10,000 pages of documents containing evidence that they decided to pretend didn't even exist. And it was here in these 10,000 document pages that Tim learned details about the investigation that he had never known. And here are these interesting details. 
He learned that the idea was floated, that Tim himself had also killed his own mother, and her autopsy was among the files which showed that she had died of an infection in her heart muscle. The shoe prints next to the drag trail were from a Tom McAnn shoe, and this was a casual dress shoe that Tim had never owned, in a size that he wasn't at the age of 15. The reports showed that police were actually so desperate that they had went to a local shoe store and asked the clerk for a free pair of Tom McCann shoes, which the, the clerk refused to give away as free merchandise, and they actually logged the store clerk as a potential suspect in the murder. He learned that someone had called in a tip to Crime Stoppers saying that someone else in the community had confessed to killing Peggy, and they questioned this man, but not about his role in the crime. They asked him about Tim Masters and sent him on his way. They reviewed crime scene photos and actually determined that there must have been two men carrying her body down the field because you can actually see where her feet were pull, pulled back up and then put back down and dragged and where they were picked up again by a second person. So there's breaks basically in the drag marks of Peggy's feet. They also noted that since the footprints start at one specific spot and come back to that exact specific spot, that there must have been a car used as a landmark for the people who dumped her body to run back to the exact same spot that they started from. Another interesting point was that the prosecution argued that Peggy's legs were splayed when they couldn't have been because her pants were around her knees, which they argued was the position they were in when she was dragged onto the field, even though no one could have mutilated her genitals on the field with her pants around her knees. It was also noted that the stab hole in her jacket didn't line up with her shirt, meaning that she was moving in a twisting motion when she was stabbed. The pooling of blood in this really, really flat stuck-on mark on her back indicated that she was lying face-up on something squishy after being stabbed, like the backseat of a car. When the police were wrapping up her body, she had bled out quite a bit from her wound in an amount that was enough to soak through the white sheet that they were wrapping her body in, so any analysis of blood loss was going to be completely inaccurate. They called upon a surgeon to confirm that the injuries made, particularly to Peggy's clitoris, were done with a scalpel by someone skilled enough to only go a certain depth into the flesh. They called upon a knife expert who said that all of Tim's sawtooth knives couldn't have made the stab wound on her back without tearing the clothing in a particular manner that it was not torn in. They located many of the witnesses from the trial who felt that they had been misled by James Broderick, as well as jurors who were shocked to learn that so many details of this case had been left out. A map of the area would put to rest the idea that the road by Tim's house was the better choice to walk home on when there was a shorter and better lit path between the Prime Minister Bar and Peggy's apartment, and that path just so happened to go right by Dr. Hammond's house. It was noted that the withholding of the FBI profile by the prosecution was illegal, and it, among the mountains of other documents, should have been turned over to the defense team. There was also the matter of Dr. Hammond, the pervert who meticulously documented his own perversions and lived in the same distance from the field where Peggy's body was found, with a clear view of her body. It would be uncovered that Dr. Hammond was actually friends with Terry Gilmore, the DA, 
which might explain his light treatment. These are details that I did mention earlier, but Tim and his lawyers were only finding out about Dr. Hammond himself right then. The prosecution might argue that Dr. Hammond had only been videotaping girls for two years, starting long after Peggy's murder, but since the entire storage unit worth of videos was destroyed without even being looked at, it's not clear when he started videotaping. And then would come the one aspect of the case that had a chance of getting Tim Masters out of jail, DNA evidence. Around this time, a new technology which analyzed very small skin sample traces was being tested for um, touch DNA. And the technology for this was led by a Dutch couple named the Eichland Booms. Now, I have my opinions about touch DNA. And I believe it has been improperly implemented in certain cases, but this isn't one of those cases. What they would do is they would test areas on the victim's clothing that they believe the killer might have grabbed and where no other DNA from someone else could reasonably be, like a jacket collar or under the armpits where she was dragged and inside of her underwear. Under the law, if the defense wants to retest some evidence for DNA, the prosecution is allowed to as well. So what the prosecution did next was unbelievable and sneaky. They lied to a custodian of the evidence and removed it from its packaging without the defense team realizing. They then had portions of the clothing that the Eichland Booms wanted to test destroyed by their own DNA techs who were not trained to look for touch DNA and who ruined the areas with cotton swabs. They also attempted to make the argument that since the jury had manhandled the evidence, something the prosecution told them to do, it might be contaminated. They didn't even bother to run the tests on the samples that they took. So basically, they stole the evidence from the courthouse and ruined it. Despite all of this, the defense team get, did get this evidence back, and it personally accompanied a lawyer to the Eichland Booms lab. Another game the prosecution and police department played was sending over files related to Dr. Hammond with every single name involved redacted with a black mark. They tried to claim that it was their new computer system that did it, but when it was pointed out that all of the names had been inked out with a Sharpie, they relented and sent the report with the actual names in it. It would be discovered that victims of Dr. Hammond's were never told about the destruction of the evidence, nor did they give their consent to have it destroyed. Not to mention that countless other women who never knew they had been filmed just will never know about it. Many women would later want to sue Dr. Hammond's estate and find that all the evidence had been destroyed for their case. There was also the matter of the woman who had been threatened with the icicle outside of the Prime Minister bar. It would turn out that this man had been calling her for weeks and threatening her. And then when he showed up to the Prime Minister, she recognized his voice and he brandished an icicle. And guess what? It just so happened that this man brandishing the icicle almost perfectly matched the description of Dr. Hammond at that time. The prosecution's apparent protection of this crazed sex offender, Dr. Hammond, in favor of going after Tim Masters would never be explained. In 2007, the media became involved, and this time in a way that questioned Tim's conviction. In one interview with James Broderick, he described convicting Tim Masters as the high point of his career.
during one of the many hearings for Tim Masters' case, um, a woman approached the defense team investigator and said that she lived in Dr. Hammond's old house. She told them that James Broderick had come by and demanded to be let in so that he could look out of her bedroom window and asked her if she would stand where Peggy's body was while he did this. She didn't like how pushy he was, and he actually told her that he would be doing it whether she liked it or not. It was while Tim was still sitting in jail in January of 2008 that another inmate called out and told him to turn on the news. And there the news was reporting on the plan to vacate Tim's sentence. The Saturday after the news report, Tim left the courthouse after his sentence was vacated and he left a free man. On January 29, 2008, the case was sent to State Attorney General John Southers to take over. The Bar Association stated that attorneys Blair and Gilmore had directly impaired the proper operation of the criminal justice system in the trial of Timothy Masters, and they were asked to pay fines. Tim Masters filed notice of intent to sue the Fort Collins Police Department, and instead of release a statement of apology, they released a statement that Tim Masters was still a suspect in the case. Larimer County would end up paying $4.1 million to Tim to settle his case, and the city of Fort Collins paid $5.9 million. In July 2010, a grand jury indicted James Broderick on eight counts of felony perjury, which is lying on the stand in court. The case against Jim Broderick would cost the authorities $500,000, and that's in addition to the $10 million awarded to Tim Masters for his false imprisonment, and it doesn't even include the costs of the actual investigation over the years, including the ridiculous $30,000 paid to a psychologist to tell the jury that Tim Masters was a violent pervert. The charges against Broderick for perjury for whatever reason, were eventually dropped, and he resigned in 2013 amidst a whirlwind internal investigation regarding his mishandling of the Peggy Hedrick murder case. So part of the $50,000 is actually back pay owed to Broderick while he was on administrative leave. On June 28, 2011, State Attorney General John Southers issued an official statement exonerating Tim Masters from the murder of Peggy Hetrick and the district attorney at that time, Larry Abramson, issued a formal apology to Tim and his family. In a twist of events, what they actually did was they used the DNA collected by their own DNA text back when they stole the evidence from the courthouse to create a partial profile that did not match Tim Masters. So Tim Masters was free. But the case of who killed Peggy Hetrick still remains unsolved. As I think about this case and as I went over it, I can't help but wonder much more about James Broderick. What could have possibly been his motivation in going after Tim Masters? With everything in front of him, there must have been a point when he realized Tim Masters wasn't their killer. So why did he decide to double down? I mentioned that at one point, the Peggy Hetrick case was the only unsolved murder in the Fort Collins books, and did Broderick see all of his workmates celebrating their solved cases and get jealous, or did something inside of him snap? He spent five hours in Tim's room that day, 
looking at the juvenile sketches of a teenage boy and trying to imagine that they represented genital mutilation. It sort of makes you wonder who in this entire ordeal was the most preoccupied with sex. And I'll tell you right now, it wasn't Tim Masters. If Broderick wanted the case that made his career, the case that got the sicko lurking in the shadows, he had it right there in the form of Dr. Richard Hammond. Why did he let a person who possessed child pornography leave the station and check himself into and out of a psychiatric center? Was it because he was pals with the DA or was it just middle-aged white guy doctor privilege? The Fort Collins Police Department, until very recently, or maybe there's some holdouts, claim that there's more to the Tim Masters case than anyone knows. And what's more, that there's more evidence. You can find some articles online alluding to this unseen evidence and questioning if the right thing was done by releasing Tim Masters. And if that's the case, that there's more evidence, then where is it? Why wasn't it used to convict Tim Masters? Why wasn't it included in the files turned over to the defense or brought up at any of the hearings leading up to Tim's exoneration? The answer to why this is, is because it doesn't exist. They just want people to believe it does so they don't look as big of fools. But it's like if they do have it, then they also look like total fools. So it's just fools all around, fools everywhere. But what's more is that in addition to Peggy herself and Tim Masters and his family, the other victims in this story are the family of Peggy Hetrick, who, thanks to the severe criminal bungling of her case, will perhaps never have answers for what actually happened that night. Whew. So thank you, everybody, for listening to that case. It was a long one. As always, I'll have a new episode in a couple of weeks. If you guys enjoy my show and you want to do me a big old favor, please go on to iTunes and rate and review my show. I would really, really, really appreciate that. And I also have a Patreon. I think someone alerted to me on the last episode I said $1 per day. That's not true. If you donate just $1 per month, then you will get a colored red vinyl sticker and a handmade thank you card from me. So thanks everybody for listening. See you later.